our first story of the evening will be Skimming the Surface by Sarah Evans, to be read by Patsy Prince. Sarah Evans has had over a hundred stories published in competition anthologies, magazines, and online, including Bridgeport Prize, Unthanked Books, Bloomsbury, and Fiction Desk. Recently, her story, Acclimatizing, won the inaugural Winston Fletcher Prize. She's also had work performed in London, Hong Kong, and New York. Patsy trained at RADA and King's College, London. Most recently, she appeared in Culture Shock, a feature film directed by Steve Belson, which premiered at Raindance 2012. Theatre credits include Voices from September 11th, Like Being Killed, and Hidden Voices. And their website's on the programme. Patsy! consuming vast amounts of cereal and fry-up. Aren't you noisy, I'd like to say. Chloe's fine, I reply. At least she was before your rudeness. Chloe adopts her closing-in look, eyes downcast, shoulders hunched as if she'd like to climb inside and disappear. Quiet, morphs into blushing mortification at being herself. Outside the deep-set windows of the farmhouse, mist clings to the fells, blurring the world in shifting grains. Why come to Borrowdale if you don't appreciate quiet? Today is Chloe's tenth birthday. I don't want to party, she said, voice low and firm. Are you sure? Quite sure. She doesn't enjoy parties. Not that she gets invited to many. I know the whole process of deciding who to invite, handing out invitations, and being the centre of attention would be agony. Chloe's father looked at me with exasperation when I explained. Don't you think we should be encouraging her to be, well, a bit more normal? Can't always give in to what kids say they want. Quiet is normal for her. Sure, but Patrick has never been the reserved type. For a while, the two of us thought our contrasting styles complemented one another. But he has since reverted to kind. His girlfriend, Magda, is more like him and comes with a pair of chatterbox daughters. Chloe hates staying there. She wanted to spend her birthday, just the two of us. We couldn't have known that the farmhouse B&B would be booked up with rumbustious families, 
four talk-a-lot adults plus a collection of rowdy boys. We forego extra toast and return to our room, where we pack our rucksacks and pull on outer layers. Down in the lobby, I collect the packed lunches I ordered carefully. Cheese with no butter on the bread, ready salted crisps, apple juice, not orange. Chloe is precise in her requirements. Shouldn't we be teaching her to be more robust? My ex-husband demands, echoing her teachers. She feels sick sometimes before going to school, pleads for downtime, not play dates after the ordeal of being there, comes home from access weekends drained and unwilling to talk. It's far from easy figuring what's best to do. Outside, the air smells of green and loam. We plan the walk together, and Chloe has control of directions. We head along the country lane before a stile takes us into dew-fresh fields. Sheep bar to and fro with mewing lambs. A tractor chugs. Wind rustles in the leaves and our boots rattle the loose slates of the path. Chloe stops as we reach the river, peering intently at the map, checking and rechecking her compass. I know the way, but I let her figure it out. We could go over the stepping stones, she says, but there's a bridge further along. Which do you think? She opts for the solidity of the humpback bridge. The path deviates from the river and starts to climb. Through the trees, the mist is beginning to separate. Wisps drift downwards, opening a gap with the upper bands still shrouding the high peaks. We walk companionably, settling into a silence that is open to be broken, but only if we choose. We point out the things we see. Blue patches amongst the cloud, a wobble-legged black-faced lamb, an oddly shaped solitary oak. I promised Patrick that I'd consider his idea of Chloe seeing a child psychiatrist, that I'd try to talk her into joining after-school clubs. Magda runs some drama group, apparently, and it might be just the thing. But it's her birthday, and I want us to simply enjoy the present moment, immersing ourselves in the hazed beauty. Peace, calm, hush, stillness, soft, contemplative, quiet. These are not negative traits. It's through the power of quiet reflection that people achieve extraordinary things. Shakespeare was an introvert. Isaac Newton was. Tchaikovsky, Lincoln, to name but a few. Groupthink does not produce leaps of innovation. General relativity was not the result of teamwork. Beethoven did not co-write his symphonies. Without modern-day introverts, There'd be no personal computers, no Facebook, no internet. Quiet is good. Arguments run through my mind 
they never sound convincing said out loud. The path rises to a peak, then falls back towards the river. We pause on the riverbank. Shall we break? Pale sun dances through the trees. Water rushes over rocks. Ducks quack and waddle up to us, demanding bread. Do you remember last time? I ask, skimming stones. She nods. Want to try? Okay. I pick out flat-faced stones, then choose one to demonstrate. I remember Dad teaching me when I was Chloe's age. It took forever, a process of trial and error, but eventually something clicked and I acquired the knack. People labelled me as chronically shy back then because so many things that others took too easily seemed overwhelming to me. My first attempt sinks. The second, I manage better. Once, twice, it skims the surface, temporarily defying gravity. Only slowly, painfully, did I learn the skills necessary to negotiate an unquiet world. And it was Dad's patient acceptance which helped me much more than Mum's anxious desire to throw me in at deep ends to push me further and faster than felt comfortable. Just let my daughter be. She'll be fine. I pass a stone to Chloe. She takes her time choosing where to stand, then hesitates, cautious in everything she does. Just have a go, I want to say. But she learns better when allowed to find her own way. Finally, she works up to it. She swivels one way, then unfurls, her arm moving in a flowing arc, face tight with concentration. The stone plops straight to the bottom, the ripples undulating out before dissipating in the general flow. I laugh gently, but her face remains serious. We take turns. I don't patronise her by deliberately fluffing it, though I'm out of practice and my aim is hit and miss anyway. I think I only have one shot at raising my child. I don't get to practice till I get it right. What if I'm getting everything wrong? What if Patrick's right and she needs specialised help? What if an introvert mother is a bad mother? We've been doing this for several minutes when I hear noise behind us. I turn to see those families from breakfast, polluting the magic with their clashing colours and loud prattle. Shall we move on? I ask. Just a few more. Well, hello there! That woman shouts, imagining we're deaf. How are you getting on? My heart sinks like those stones. I fix my smile and say a frigid, hello. The boys see what we're doing and collect great handfuls of rocks. One after another, their stones hit the water and sink. They snigger, insult and jostle one another, quickly getting bored. Chloe moves away and spends an age sifting through the shingle. She picks a stone up and drifts further. Her feet are nimble over the rocks that jut out until she's standing part way in the river, her back to us as she focuses on the task shutting out the world. 
She rehearses her arm movement. The boys have stopped to look. Get on with it, one of them shouts. I turn and give them my sternest frown and raise a finger to my lips. I don't expect them to take notice, but for some reason, they do. Everyone watches. Chloe bends her knees a little. She swings her arm and slender body back and forth, like a ballet dancer. Light catches in her hair. Her toe-curled ungainliness is gone, and she's beautiful to watch. My elfin girl, whose thoughts I only ever skim the surface of. On the third swing, she lets go. The stone sweeps the line of the river. It bounces off the bright edge of the water, skipping once, twice, thrice, skipping four, then five, then six times. Her face is alive with joy and triumph. And just for the moment, everyone is... Thank you, Pat. Our second story will be The Biography by Simone Hayes, read by Louisa Gunn. Simone is based in Cape Town and London. She recently received the Miles Morland Writing Award is working on a book of narrative non-fiction about a murder trial and alleged police framework. Her fiction has been published in the literary magazine Proofer, and her non-fiction is being translated into French. Louisa is a Lies' League regular. Her recent voiceover work includes The Vine in 1914, Strand on BBC Radio 2, Seducing Harry Enfield on a radio ad, guiding visitors around Stockholm's Moderna Muset and giving instructions inside an MRI scanner. <laughs> Louisa! The Biographers by Simone Hayson. She was 25 when they first met and working as his typist. He was 45 and had not yet written his best work. Because she had just quit her job as a nurse, he asked her, mischievously, tell me about the last wishes of the dying. Each time, she gave a different answer. He was childless, and she wasn't interested in motherhood, and that meant they lived a large life. Too large. For his health, some might argue. At 16... He came to her, unable to say what the matter was. She told him to lie down on the sunbed in the garden of their country home while she called a doctor. He died with the smell of herbs on the breeze. After his death, book after book was written about him. She inherited his whole estate, the country house, his library, the rights to his work, his papers and letters. All the biographers came to court her for his records, which remained in their house. Every visit followed a similar pattern. They would call to set up an appointment. If they were obviously serious, they would be allowed to visit. 
she would receive them, serve them tea, talk to them about their lives and their work, and then show them up to his old office. For them, she kept it as it had been. His letters, notebooks and drafts were kept in so many manila folders in a handful of cardboard boxes. These would be waiting for them on his desk. At the end of all their fussing through, if they wished, they would make another appointment to interview her. Each biographer came in the hope that they would find some note, some trinkets that the others had missed. This log of memory, they hoped, would make this new biography a greater insight into the character of the man than the last. One spent a chapter inventing hidden meanings in the birthday cards sent by his distant relatives. Another unsympathetic academic noticed with glee that he'd sent the same, same poetry to his mistress in Europe as he had to her. I could have told them that, she thought. I typed them up. She felt terrible explaining to a very young literary cricket, critic that the post-it the woman had found, which she believed unlocked the true meaning of the penultimate scene of the author's, author's masterwork, was in his lawyer's handwriting and must have become mixed up with her late lover's things. Each one attributed more and more significance to his or her tiny detail, even though in reality each biographer had been talented. So the one before, and the one before, and the one before that, had each snagged the most important and most telling artifact that still remained unprocessed, true to his purpose. <coughs> in each biography, the man remained essentially the same. He did not change, as in life, the woman thinks. His character was so curiously unbending to his own fortunes, despite his feigned sensitivity. But she, on the other hand, was the character that grew, that was transfigured in each book. From an unassuming ingenue turned sophisticate, laid low with grief, to an ever-scheming woman, still profiting off her one-time beauty through the control of his legacy. To his greatest muse, to his greatest mistake, each biographer's interpretation depended so much, she thought, not on the formal interview she gave, but on their experience of the tea she held with, on, with each visitor on the veranda of the house. True devotees of the great man read each book, each time hoping for a new perspective on their hero. <coughs> Instead, they delved deeper into her. As she grew older, the visitors thinned out. Eventually, she too died, and her relatives cleared out her things. They found she had written a novel of extraordinary beauty. A whirlwind of rumours swept through the literary world. Could she have held something of his back and passed it off as her own? Preposterous, her editor, posthumously acquired, countered. Its settings and themes dated precisely to the last years of her life. But could, no wait, the lit logs tittered. Could his later writing actually have been hers? Clearly she did more than simply type for him when, he, when she was alive, said her fresh, eager fans. 
they were dismissed by his spokespeople in the academy with counter-allegations that she had borrowed more from his style than was apparent to the casual reader. People with no obvious allegiance intervened. She was not coy, an obituary said. She claimed any credit she deserved and imitated no one. But in a different paper, an old school friend disagreed, ending his remembrances cryptically with, she had an inner defeatedness. Archivists, academics, and true-life yarn spinners all clamoured to review his documents once again, and hers too. But the estate had quickly been sold. The library and offices packed up and shipped to a Turkish university, and its container had been infuriatingly mislaid in Rotterdam. Her novel held no clues. It was not a thinly fictionalised memoir, but an act of pure imagination. My last wish, her niece tearfully read from her will at a press conference, is that one thing be preserved, exactly as I ask it. In this case, it was the title of the book, which bore no obvious relation to its contents. She had called it The Biographers. Thank you, Louisa. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be 33,333rd Time Lucky by Jim Cogan. 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 Read by Paul Clark. As a freelance copywriter and corporate filmmaker, Jim Cogan grapples on a daily basis with big themes. Global skincare trends, potato cultivation in Essex, mailroom technology and risk mitigation policy in local government. He's also the go-to guy for making asset management software sound sexy. Paul Clark trained at the Central School and generally ends up playing bad guys or monsters. As a photographer and occasional performer, he now tells stories of one sort or another pretty much all of the time. Paul! Thirty-three thousand, three hundred and thirty-third time lucky. By Jim Cogan. Fail number one. Day one, minute one, and smack off the bat. You fucked up. My wife. Bleeding to death. Your own mother. As if you haven't caused her pain enough already. You have to go and kick her on your way out, you (coughs) clumsy little twerp. A massive postpartum hemorrhage, they said. No doubt aggravated by this and that and whatnot, I grant you. (laughs) But I've seen how babies flail and flash. I wasn't there, of course. What use could I be in a delivery room? I'm a heart surgeon. 
I save lives on a daily basis. So I had every reason, every right to expect only good news. But no, you had to embarrass me in front of the chaps. 13 Monte Cristos and a decanter of choicest cognac. Wasted. Fine fellows, all of them. If I wept, they'd have understood. I do hope this doesn't set the tone for your future. I really do. But something tells me I'll be disappointed. Fail number two. Day two. That's it. She's gone. After a valiant struggle, she's gone. Are you satisfied? Are you finally satisfied? <coughs> my angel, my Athene, my life. <coughs> 29 years old, for Christ's sake, practically a child herself. I know what you're thinking. Or at least I know what you would be thinking if you were capable of it. You'd argue this is just an extension of fuck-up number one. That the damage was already done yesterday. Well, I'm afraid you don't get off so lightly. She insisted on holding you, you see. Her eyes were full of tears and I could see she was trying, like the angel she was, to forgive you. But there's no doubt that final exertion is what did for her. And what the hell's the point of a ten-pound infant, anyway? I was barely half that weight at birth. And it's quite clear my mother never felt a thing. Fail number three. Day three. This morning, I held you for the first time. Only for a moment, just long enough to check your heart was beating. Your pulse is lamentably weak. Not diseased or anything, just weak. A non-sound, like lips parting again and again and again and again. Anyone else without my expert ear would have taken you for dead. Well, they would if you hadn't decided to piss down my shirt front. <laughs> oh no, I don't blame that damn fool of a trainee midwife or her failure to fasten your napkin correctly. I blame you. Because it's now quite clear. Every day of your life, you're going to fuck something up. Every single day. With the dull, despicable regularity of a healthy sinoatrial node. It's inevitable. I can see that now. I only hope you'll find it in your heart, once in a blue moon, to try and make me proud. Fail number 31. One month of father. Shortly after lunch, I was disturbed by a ring at the doorbell. Christ knows where the housekeeper was. Whoever it was kept ringing and ringing, and in the end I had to answer it myself. My father stood outside, his hair 
properly grey at the last. His, his body half the size I remembered. He was dressed in the usual three-piece suit and watch chain. But since his face wore a smile, he might as well have been in carnival costume. Hamish, he stammered. I heard you had a son. I don't know what you mean, I said, staring. Hamish, he repeated. I wanted to congratulate you. Please, let... I want to make things up to you. Please. There was no child here, I told him. And that's when you started crying. His eyes lit up. Yellowed slivers of enamel peeped beneath the moustache. I closed the door in his face. You were howling now, although the only thing I could hear was galley drums. I clutched my wrist and ran to my office for the pillbox. Two minutes later, I vomited them up, along with my lunch. You're doing all of it. Fail number 1,496. The lissom bottle blonde I had the foresight to engage as your nanny came to see me, holding a ragged scrap of paper. He drew this for you, she whispered, stroking my jaw. At the top of the page, she'd written, I love you, Daddy, in pencil. A cloddish wax crayon veered and swerved in a vain attempt to follow the lines. <laughs> Who's that giant pig supposed to be, I asked. Or is it a bear, the one surrounded by flowers? She laughed and guided my hand to unbutton her blouse. Afterwards, I spent a long time studying the drawing, shaking my head. I'm certain that at your age, I had a far, far greater mastery of perspective. <laughs> Fail number 5,621. A sea in woodwork? <laughs> right as well have never taken the subject, you dogs. I told you not to bother, didn't I? Not because it's unimportant. As a matter of fact, it's the most important discipline a boy can learn. I just knew, somehow, that you'd fail. Your father, on the other <coughs> hand, packs his way into three chest cavities per day with a circular saw and then wires them back together in time for tea. <laughs> so don't try and distract me with the A's you've got in all your other exams. I mean, what use is a fellow who's no good with his hands? Fail number 6094. This morning, when I came into your room, as I nearly always do, I upended your scruffily made mattress, and a pack of razor blades fell out and scattered across the floor. I was shocked, to say the least. Shocked and disappointed, because after all, razor blades are a girl's way. I know all about self-harm. Believe me. I'm a doctor. Why had you forgotten that? 
Besides, what kind of cataclysmic shit for brains hides his contraband beneath his mattress when he knows full well his father's going to come in and toss it? It's almost as if you wanted me to find those things. Or perhaps you imagined those hospital corners of yours might finally be up to scratch. Well, I'll say it again. Until you're old enough to join the army, the only place a boy like you can hope to learn hospital corners is in hospital. But then I've put you in hospital a good few times, haven't I? And it's still a bloody work. Fail number 7,884. You hammered and hammered, crying and begging me to let you in, begging me not to do it. But as a wise lady once said, boy, you do manage to look ridiculous when you give me orders. I finished the brandy <coughs> and placed the revolver's barrel against my temple. Only then did you think to try and force the door as the lock gave way and you fell into the room, I pulled the trigger, saw your eyes wide and gormless with terror and love. Late again. Weak as always. Fail number 7889. You blubbed all the way through my funeral, disgracing me. The eulogy you gave showed how little you understood your own father. And please, please tell me, the homely, simpering chestnut mare who gripped your hand throughout the burial is not my future daughter-in-law. Christ! Oh! Why can't I get comfortable in this damn box? <laughs> Trail number 11,351. Oh, for fuck's sake, boy. Have you learned nothing from the way I raised you? I mean, he, he is my grandson, so I suppose I have some right to comment. You told him to get down from the coffee table. He refused to get down from the coffee table. So why the hell are you kneeling there trying to reason with the filthy little smeg bubble? It's a coffee table, not a 20th story window! Just clout him round the head and be done with it. Fail number 16,425. <coughs> My, this is a biggie, one of your finest yet. An entire career flushed down the pan. Half a lifetime's work reduced to nothing. It hurts me all the more, you see, because I've very nearly forgiven you for choosing law over medicine. For, for full details, see fail number 6,579. <laughs> Something to do with your becoming the youngest partner in your firm's history. I, I mean, you can't argue with that. So I didn't bother trying. And then you have to go and jack it all in to found a fucking 
charity. For fuck's sake! All because you wanted to do something more meaningful with your life. Oh, please! Do you think I became a heart surgeon out of love for humanity? Ha! Fail number 23,728. I'm hurt beyond expression. It's pretty hard to feel hurt when you're dead. I mean, without me, you wouldn't even be receiving this bloody knighthood. Not just because you're the fruit of my seed, but because this organisation of yours, whose work in the field of mental health is so fulsomely lauded, was founded in my name. Thanks to me, you're a supporting character in your own autobiography. That's quite some achievement, and one I don't shy away from. And yet, despite all this, you neglect to wear the family tartan to your investiture. (laughs) Enjoy your success, son, if that's what you call it. It's easy to forget where you came from, isn't it? (coughs) Easy to forget who put you there. Fail number 33,333, a.k.a. success. Oh. Okay. I like what you did there. No nonsense, no fanfare, no histrionics, no hysterics. Just stopped breathing. In your 92nd year, lying in the same bed you've slept in for 60 plus years with your wife and three children, your seven grandchildren and two great-grandchildren all there with you, clustered round the bed. Plenty of crying. But you couldn't really call it sorrow. Plenty of smiles and holding hands. A glowing obituary destined for every one of tomorrow's broadsheets. Makes my own demise look somewhat vulgar by comparison. I'll admit that. Well done, you... We'll be together again soon, in this place, wherever it is, or or maybe we won't. I hope we are, because the fact is, I'm alone here, and it's dark. Court is adjourned. You have 15 minutes. And because it's our birthday, they're feeling generous. How many prizes do we have? Before and you don't today, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say.
So as per usual, we can't really see you out there. Um, so if you know the answer, stick your hand in the air and shout, GUILTY! <laughs> Can we try that? Practice, if you like. GUILTY! Perfect. And then we'll know roughly who might know the answer in the room. So, the first question. Who defends Tom Robinson? GUILTY! Oh. Is the correct answer. Which book would you like to? A careless, thoughtful, thought-provoking behaviour. Oh, yes. I just want Excellent. Well done. Second question. Which Shakespearean farce Features mistaken identities between two sets of identical twins. Oh, yes, madam. Comedy and errors. It's correct. Oh, 
Crown and Punishment? No. <laughs> but there are many books 150 years old. But... The theme is curiouser and curiouser. Alice in Wonderland. Who's that name? Alice in Wonderland. Put your hand up. It's like, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. Yeah! Alice in Wonderland. This is why it's infamous. It, it peters out at the end every time. <laughs> right. Some notice. The liars are on the radio. Hong Kong and New York stories have already aired and can be listened to again by the magic of the internet. <coughs> London story will air this Sunday at 7.45pm on Radio 4. We're recording from last month's Boom and Bust. Roshan Estiandieri Martins, The Wallet. Please do tune in for that. The Liars will be back here live on the 12th of May with Master and Servant. If you are a writer, drawn in perhaps by our promises of fame and the occasional radio glory, our next open theme is Dungeons and Dragons. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings, are on the Liars website. Are we good to go? Here we are. Right. So our penultimate story of the evening will be Calling Out by Jennifer Rickard, read by Paul Pitt. Jennifer lives in London and is a freelance content writer by day and a more interesting writer by night. Her first novel was written aged six, and was a tale of epic adventure starring her guinea pigs. She still writes epic adventures, but with less guinea pigs. Paul Case has been a storyteller and performance poet since 2008, mainly performing under the pseudonym Captain of the Rout. He has performed at major festivals such as the Secret Garden Party and internationally in German, Germany, Thailand, and Australia. So, Paul. Calling Out by Jennifer Rickard. 18th of March. Tomorrow's the day. Well, today technically since it's 3am, but I couldn't lie around in the dark any longer. Got out of bed and out of the room before Gemma woke up. She's a light sleeper and I can't deal with her questions right now. Made coffee and paced the house for a while. Eventually sat out on the porch and looked out at the fields and the stars. I've always found the stars to be comforting. It's nice to know they're always there. And somewhere in all that space is that asteroid. And somewhere on that asteroid is the probe, just waiting for its wake-up. Gemma told me that calling the probe Eurydice and our wake-up call Orpheus was silly. Because sure, Orpheus led Eurydice out of the underworld, but ultimately he failed in his mission. He wasn't meant to look at her until they reached daylight, but in his eagerness he glanced back too soon and she vanished into the darkness. Gemma said this was a typical example of what happens when scientists try to venture into the arts. Her and her bloody classical education. I ignored her. 
still. I wish she hadn't told me that. Well, I guess it's time. Time to go and be obvious. Later on, I went to the station as early as I could. I'm running on coffee and adrenaline and feeling truly sick. Three calls from Gemma, but haven't returned any of them. My entire career depends on this probe calling back to us when we call to it. My entire fucking career. Still later, we call. Eurydice did not call back. Dr. Lawrence is absolutely furious. He knows how important it is to the project. No, the whole station that this probe calls back to us. He sat us all down and said, We're not fucking NASA here, people. We're a very poor space centre in Swindon and we can't afford this shit. <laughs> and then promptly demanded solutions. Jim was the signalman, Polly said, as soon as she possibly could. Trust that bitch. He wrote the liar programming, so it's got to be the programming that took fault. So it's his responsibility. Dr. Lawrence fixed me with a look. We'll sort it the fuck out then, won't you, Jim? And thus I have been tasked with the job of sorting it the fuck out. <laughs> 19th of March. Haven't been home. Ten missed calls from Gemma. Don't have time to ring her. I'm working harder than I ever have before. The programming should be watertight. It should. Still no reply from Eurydice. What do you do when you call out to someone and they don't answer? 20th of March. Got it. Approach it scientifically. Three trials. So, question. What do you do when you call out to someone and they don't answer? Answer. Simple. One. You call louder. Two. You go after them. Three. You try alternative means of contact. Three trials. Go. 21st of March. Trial 1. Call louder. I fiddled with the programming a bit, even though it's not wrong. Fuck you, Holly! Then boosted the <laughs> signal and flipped all the right switches. Now I'm sitting in the dark, watching the lights flickering around me and waiting. 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 It's about half ten and everyone else has gone home. I think some of them have given up already, but I haven't. I won't. So strange. Here I am sitting in a tiny room in a tiny station on a tiny planet, and yet I'm also millions of miles away, singing across the stars to my Eurydice. I pray to God, well, all the gods really, I'm not religious and I'm not picky right now. Please, <laughs> please just answer my call. Just got a text from Gemma demanding a phone call. Didn't I talk to her the other day? I thought I had. 22nd of March. No answer. Fell asleep on desk after five Red Bulls in a row. Dr. Lawrence and the rest came in and made calculations and tutted inside. Dr. Lawrence mentioned a possible Jodrell Bank situation in tones of grim resignation. 
He sat me down and talked at length about the amount of money we've wasted, the unlikelihood of future funding, money, failure, money, failure, blah, 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 like I'm not under enough pressure. Somewhere in the universe is a hunk of very expensive metal clinging to an asteroid, waiting to be woken up. I can't get her to wait. 23rd of March. Trial 1. Failed. Forget it. Keep going. Trial 2. You go after them. So, if Eurydice can't come to me, then I'll go to her. Easy. A few calls to different departments in NASA, a few more bribes and threats, and I'm bouncing the signal off one of their big ugly satellites that's closer to where Eurydice should be. Now I'm floating across space, reaching out with both hands as far as I can go. I can get no further than this, Eurydice. I can get no further. Wake up, please. Wake up. 24th of March. Text from Gemma reminding me in no uncertain terms that it's almost a week since I was home. I don't think I even remember the way back anymore. I'll text her in a bit. Just need to call some bastard at NASA. They're kicking up a fuss already, the privileged sods. 25th of March. No reply. Begging and bribing NASA has stopped working. They're snatching back their satellite like a spoilt little rich kid, snatching back his favourite toy from his poor cousin. Which means Child 2 is also a failure. I need more coffee. 26th of March. Alright, keep going. Trial 3, alternative means of contact. Believe it or not, I'm only fucking texting a space probe. Well, sort of texting anyway. It's more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. If all goes well, the the probe is programmed to reply to me with Hello, world. Here goes everything. 27th of March. Nothing. Email from Gemma, which was basically a rant. I'm sure she didn't mean half the stuff she said. I'll get a grovelling text at some point. Mark my words. She knows how important Eurydice is to me. 28th of March. Still nothing. A group of people in suits came to look around the station. Dr. Lawrence trailing behind them, talking frantically. They didn't seem to like the look of me. Can't imagine why. I've only been cooped up in this place for ten fucking days. 29th of March. Nothing. Got the expected apologetic text from Gemma. Jim, I only want to help. Please, call me. I would. It's just... She can't help. No one can. 30th of March. Nothing. Three trials and nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. I've finished. My career's finished. The station is doomed. And all my work. All my work. 31st of March. Contact! Fucking contact! Came about 4am this morning. It's strange though. No. Not strange. It's. It's wrong. The probe should reply with 
hello world. That's what it's programmed to do. But that's not what it said. What it said was, who are you? It's later on. I've gathered up everybody. We are all completely lost. Holly said, could it be broken? Could it have an error? Is this your programming gone wrong again, Jim? I really hate her. (laughs) Dr. Lawrence said, it's coming from the probe. It's exactly the right place where we landed it. It's got to be the probe. I said, but there's none of the data we want coming from it. Just those three words. Who are you? What the fuck does that mean? Holly said, it's got to be an error. Even later, maybe Holly is right. It must be an error. I'm going over everything. Everyone else has gone home. Alone again. 1st of April. Gemma texted me with, the April Fool's joke here is you haven't made contact with me for almost two weeks. Jim, what the hell? Didn't reply. Have decided to do something a little bit crazy. I replied to the probe. Same signal that added some words. I said, Are you Eurydice? 2nd of April. Got a reply. Oh my god, I've got a reply. It replied. It said no. (laughs) 3rd of April. I think I've finally gone mad. I think the coffee and the dark and the flickering lights in this fucking place have finally got to me. Because I haven't told anyone about the reply. I know it's real. It's it's recorded. It may be one word, but that word is concrete and real. I've called out to my own probe and something else has called back. I should tell someone. I should tell everyone. Why am I not telling everyone? 4th of April. Replied to the to whatever it is. I said, who are you? 5th of April. I need sleep. I haven't slept. When was the last time I slept? Got a reply early today. It said, I can see you. You're on that planet. The one with the atmosphere. I wrote back. Are you on the asteroid? 6th of April. There is no one here. Where is everyone? I've been in this place for days and I haven't spoken to anyone except that thing. (coughs) Gemma keeps texting, but I don't. I can't. I mean, what the hell do I say? It wrote again, the thing. It said... I am where I am. I am with your creation. Who are you? In a moment of madness, I said, My name is Jim. 
Seventh of April, it replied. It said, "I will destroy you, Jim." Eighth <laughs> of April, Doctor Lawrence gathered us all in for a meeting. I don't think I've spoken to actual people for days. I feel all wrong. They're closing us down, Doctor Lawrence said. Of course they are. We've nothing to show for all that money except the wrong response to a last-ditch attempt at contact. Basic guys, the trials didn't work. Eurydice is lost. And so are we. I remembered what Gemma said about the legends. Orpheus failed, Eurydice gone forever. He reached out and he almost got her, but not quite. Now, I am Orpheus. Except I reached out and I got, well, not Eurydice. Something else entirely. I should tell them what I've found. I should show them all the records. This is momentous, right? A momentous occasion. I should tell the world. But it said it would destroy me. And I haven't replied. I'm too fucking terrified to. If I don't tell anyone, if I just delete everything, maybe it won't find me. This whole thing could be just a mistake. I made an error talking to that thing. The biggest error yet. I should have just given Eurydice up for lost. 9th of April. I've made a decision. Errors can be rubbed out, right? And what if... What, what if it's just me? What if I had too many nights sleep on... Too, what if I had too many nights and too little sleep and too much coffee and I made the whole thing up? What if I wanted Eurydice to call me back so much that I made up the replies? <coughs> What if I'm mad? How can you tell when you're mad? 10th of April. Okay, I've done it. Deleted everything from the past few days. Now all that's left are all of my trials and none of my errors. 11th of April. The last day. The men in suits turned up with clipboards and briefcases and said a few things to Dr. Lawrence. Then we packed up all our stuff into a van and the centre was shut down and closed up. Well, Dr. Lawrence said when the men went away, I suppose it's time to go home. Gemma texted with, call me now. Thought about replying, but decided I'll surprise her instead. I probably should have contacted her before, but hey, plenty of time to talk now. I'm on holiday. Permanent holiday. 12th of April. I'm home. The house is empty. When I turned up, I discovered that all of Gemma's stuff and Gemma herself was gone. I should have, I mean, I should have. She left a note. It says, Isn't it the worst thing in the world when someone doesn't call you back? So I guess I made an error there too. 
Usually I go to the porch when I need comfort, watch the stars. But instead tonight, I, well, it's all very well watching the stars, but it's not so great when you know the stars are watching you. So I've stayed inside, drawn the curtains, you know. But I can't help it. I think of that thing, and my mind keeps going back to trial too. Question. What do you do when you call someone and they don't call back? Answer. You go after them.
they were still boys. They had digits. <laughs> Unfortunately, no sense of proportion. Hello, my name is Vladimir. I have IQ of 150. Let's do it. <laughs> Good. Right now, at mass camp. But did he have the necessary proportionary items? No. He'd assumed that she would have the necessary proportionary items. How would she have the necessary proportionary items? She lived next door to a girls' school. Her family doctor was Presbyterian. Could Vladimir expect her to take chances? Surely he understood probability better than that. <laughs> oh, Max. Trial four. At college, the campus doctor was not Presbyterian, and the distribution of males versus females was statistically less wacko. Also, there happened to be this guy in his final year whose girlfriend had just conveniently departed, leaving a vacant slot into which someone else could be inserted. What could go wrong now? Surely nothing. Nothing at all could go wrong. Could it? But that also happened to be what she experienced. Nothing. What? How could she have felt nothing? Well, if you disregarded pain, the pain she felt, but the other thing, nothing. It was her first time, though. Yeah, right. Her first time, sure. Error. Nothing. <laughs> Trial 4.2. After a week, though, still nothing. How could it be still nothing? It hadn't been like that with his final student's previous girlfriend. With his previous girlfriend, it had been multiple and simultaneous. Oh, how nice for his previous girlfriend. Yeah, it had been nice, thank you very much. Maybe his previous girlfriend had been different. Maybe they should try something else. Something else like what? Something else like this. But this didn't feel right for him. <coughs> this didn't feel right for him. No, he couldn't feel anything. Couldn't feel anything. Poor baby. <coughs> well, with his previous girlfriend, it had been fine the other way. But with his previous girlfriend, it had been multiple and simultaneous. So there. Error 4.2. Previous girlfriends. Multiple, simultaneous, whatever's. <coughs> Equations. Trial five. Surely it wasn't that hard. What they had here was just a formula with two terms, one a constant, one a variable, which so far kept spitting out a result of zero. The sensible approach would be to substitute for that variable, meaning insert in place of boyfriend X another boyfriend Y of unknown but differing quantity. <coughs> And the best opportunity for doing this would be while boyfriend X was at a conference out of town and she and boyfriend Y were on a midterm break and preferably relaxing in the countryside. Open fields, flowers, haystacks, sunsets. 100% romantic. So, let's see what happens. Oops. That was 
actually less than nothing. But never mind. These things can happen. Nervous. Just take it easy. Oops. Was it something she was doing? No? Oh well. Oops. Damn. Not again. There appeared to be some sort of pattern emerging. Perhaps they'd better try it this other way. What? Why this other way? He couldn't feel anything this other way. Yes, exactly. That's precisely why they were trying it this other way. But then, what was the point of this other way? The point was that... Yes, the point was what? Was that... Yes, the point was what? Was that... Was what? It was... Oh! Shh! But what was the point? Shh! But... The... Oh! Yes! 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 Gasp! Yes! Yes! Oh, she actually thought she loved him, this boyfriend. Why? For about five minutes. Or possibly ten. Until she realised she actually couldn't stand him. <laughs> Which, for a start, was because he was so utterly pathetic. Why did he need to be allergic to haystacks? Not to mention getting lost a hundred times. Did he not know how to read a map? That line that was staring him in the face there, that was the road. And they couldn't be there because there happened to be a lake. And for God's sake, what now? Well, that, that was a spider. The only reason it was trying to bite him was that he was acting so pathetic. And stopping all the time, because he claimed that he was tired. What did he mean he couldn't go while she was looking? His pathetic bladder felt shy. What it was attached to didn't feel shy. And for Christ's sake, couldn't he even light a campfire? And just shut up when they were doing it. Actually, just shut up the rest of the time, too. <laughs> Error five. Unknown quantities. Trials six to twenty. No, 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 not possible. No, 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 you. No, 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 creep. No, forget it, no. No, actually, wait a minute. Maybe that was hasty. Maybe they should have another try. <coughs> Well, possibly. But first, before they proceeded any further, there were things they needed to get straight. To begin with, were there any allergies? Allergies? He wasn't aware of any allergies. Certainly not to haystacks. Great. Then how about spiders? What was his attitude towards such things? The spiders were fine. But he could take or leave them. Okay then, shyness. Some, but not unduly focused on any specific organ. His campfire skills? Of Boy Scout standard. Oh, and by the way, in case you wanted to know this, he could read a map. Oh, could he just? And what about when heading south? When heading south, he'd turn it upside down. Did he mean like this, perhaps? 
Why, yes, he did mean like that. And he was okay with that. Sure, it was okay. It didn't feel wrong from his perspective. No, it didn't. It felt a little funny. Did he mean funny ha-ha, or, or did he mean funny I want to stop? He meant... Wait. It was already apparent that he didn't need to answer that question. 